All right, if you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 11. The end of chapter 11 will probably be in chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you somewhere uh, in the seat back. We'll be on page 870. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab that. Make your way to page 870 as we just continue trekking through the book of Luke. Uh, we'll, we're going to take a couple of breaks. Uh, we're going to take a break after Easter, five weeks after Easter, we're going to do, and basically, and still working out what we're going to call it, but basically it's going to be premarital counseling for the entire church. Because some of us need some, some remedial help. Some of us, I need some remedial help, right, Sarah? We all need that. <laughs> we all need that from time to time. So we're basically going to do, uh, do a little bit of that. Um, and, uh, but pre- we will finish the book of Luke this year in the calendar year 2017. Uh, yesterday um, at our house, we went and got some new appliances. Um, the dishwasher quit on us, and so we went to the store to pick up a dishwasher. And before I knew it, we walked out of there with a dishwasher, an oven, and a microwave. Um, but in all fairness, the oven had caught on fire a couple weeks ago, so it was probably time uh, for us to get a new one. Um, but one thing that I noticed with this is that when we got these new appliances and, and we got them home, you know, we've got them, most of them installed yesterday, still working on a little bit, but we started, uh, like, you know, very, being very careful with this new stove, scrubbing it, making sure it's clean, fingerprint smudges, whatever, when the other one, I mean, there's tomato sauce running down the side, there's stuff cooked in on the top, and we don't really care, but this new one, now all of a sudden, we've had this change, and we want to take care of it, and the reason we do that and we're all kind of like this in a way, is that generally speaking, when things increase in value, they matter more to us. When things increase in value, they matter more to us. That's why those of you who have small kids, you've got a minivan and it's got goldfish crushed into the seat and it's got, you know, who knows what growing in the back from spills that have happened. But you get a new one now, all of a sudden you want to keep it clean. When things increase in value, they matter more to us. The more you value something the more it matters to you. And one of the things that we, ma- that, that, that we value the most just in general as a people and as a, as a culture is people's opinions of us. Even the guy who would say, I don't give a rip what people think about me. He actually does. He wants people to know that he doesn't give a rip. He wants that identity. He wants that reputation. So he actually does. Even someone who would say that. This is one of the things we value most in our culture. What people think about us. How they perceive us. And for some of us, it's absolute slavery. What this guy or or this girl thinks about me, what my spouse, what my friend, how my coworker views me, how my boss views me, how how my employee views me, how how another church member views me, how a PTO member views me, how a soccer coach or or or, or something, maybe I'm the coach, and how the you know parents of one of my players views me how a classmate views me, whatever, what, what they think about me. It can be controlling. And, and listen, by and large, I want to be liked, right? I want to be accepted. I want to have a good repute with others. As, a, as an elder, this is actually a requirement, First Timothy 3, that I have a good reputation with outsiders. But I also know that by living for Christ... There will be those times that I will not fit in. It, it just is. It's just the way it is. There will be places where I will not be accepted. 
There are places where I will not be liked. There are places where I won't even be really tolerated. And if you live for Christ, I mean, some people, some people are just going to think you're weird, all right? And we are, just own it, embrace it, we are. I mean, when you think about it, we worship a marginalized Galilean peasant who lived off the, the, the offerings of others, never owned a house, and died as a criminal. Right? That's weird, that's foolishness to the world. And so some people are just going to think we're weird, but others, some, I mean, the pressure is, is going to come and increasingly is going to come where, where this desire that we have to fit in and this desire we have to, to be accepted, to not be weird, to not be people on, you know, that people look at and, and, and don't include, where that desire is going to cause us, to going to drive us to deny Christ. And if not deny Him, just Maybe we want to go into his secret service. We don't want to acknowledge him. Don't let anybody know. Yeah, we'll worship him, but we'll, we'll do that in private. We don't, we don't want people to know. They might think weird things about us. It might mean something for my job or, or potential promotions or upward mobility. So I keep that to myself. And this temptation is exactly what the disciples were facing at the end of Luke 11. It's this temptation to keep quiet, to deny Christ. See, Jesus had been in, invited to dinner, right, with some Pharisees. He went there, and in love, he just went off on them, and rebuked them, and called out woes on the Pharisees, called out woes on the lawyers, which are not lawyers like we think of, but people who knew the law of God, people who were trained in the Word. And so he goes off on them in love. And then the dinner ends, right? People are like, we're out of here. They get up and they leave. And as they leave, it's, it's just pandemonium. They want to arrest him. They want to they find him in something. Crowds are going nuts. They're upset. There's thousands of people, it says, to the point that they're kind of trampling on him. And so he's caused a bit of an uproar. This is what Jesus does. And in the midst of that, the disciples now are becoming really, really nervous because it's dangerous now to be associated with Christ. People want to kill him. People want him out. And so they're going fearful. And Jesus kind of turns to them and basically just kind of lays out, hey, guys, here's how to live fearlessly. Here's how to live fearlessly. And just kind of lays out this pathway of becoming fearless. And that's what I want to try to share with you a little bit this morning. How we become fearless and a pathway of fearlessness that's true in the face of people that we might fear, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of tragedy, in the face of scariness, in the face of our own sin. All right, how, how to become fearless. And so look at it with me, if you will. Luke chapter 11, verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. 
Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And so this idea here of hypocrisy, all right, something that starts, and when it starts, it, it, it spreads and infects everything else like leaven does through bread. And this idea of hypocrisy is just being one thing in public and being something else in private. It's not the occasional slip up that we all as as sinners, those many of us in this room have been redeemed, but we're still, you know, still sinners, still have that fleshly nature. This isn't a slip up that we fall into. This is more of a conscious insincerity. It's playing a part. It's living a facade. It's exactly what Jesus had just went off on the Pharisees about. And now he's saying to his disciples, beware of this. Because, listen to everybody, we are prone to this. Every single one of us are prone to this. And you might be able to hide your sin for a while in this life. Number one, it usually gets found out. Number two, even if it's not, God knows. And God's the judge. And he will make it, it will be made known. And so one of the things that you can do to fight fear in your own life is to fight your hypocrisy and to just kind of get up into our business a little bit more than just saying fight your hypocrisy. Fight your secret sin. That thing that just went through your mind. That thing that you are terrified of other people finding out about. The thing that you live in fear. Controlled kind of because what what if what if that ever gets found out? I'm not sure how many of you have gotten into the TV show Sherlock. Uh, me and Sarah love it. Uh, watch that show. It's it's addicting. It's it's fun. It's. You know, exercise your mind. You're trying to figure these things out. We have a lot of fun with that. But the guy who wrote or kind of came up with uh, Sherlock, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he used to tell a story about a man who sent a telegram. So this is back in the day. Sent a telegram uh, to 12 friends. All right. 12 friends of high reputation. They were regarded very well, respected. Right, had a lot of pull, pull in society. And he sent this telegram, only six words on it. And this is what the six words said. Fly at once, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, all 12 of them had left the country. What would happen if you got that telegram? All is discovered. Everything about you that's secret and you keep hidden was made known. Here's the reality. It is known. God's omniscient. You can't hide from Him. Okay? We are naked and bare before Him. He knows all things. In verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore... Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And so, folks, it's coming out. Every proud conceit, 
every petty theft, every angry word, every hateful word, every abusive blow, lustful fantasy, thought of self-pity, spin of the truth, whisper of gossip. It's all coming out now or someday. And if we do, here's what I want you to hear. If we do not confess and put to death our secret sin today, then we will live a life of fear of being found out, of being discovered. And this isn't some fear that's like exists out there and we can't control. It's unknown. There's this uncertainty. This is a fear that we are choosing to live in because we love this little pet sin of ours more that, that wants to kill us. We love it more than Christ. And folks, little pet secret sins, they will devour you. Like you may think you can domesticate it and you can tame it. But like a tiger in Vegas has been doing shows for years, eventually it's going to snap and kill you. And so stop trying to tame your sins and drag them into the light and put a bullet in them instead. Kill them, put to death. Colossians 3. We have this choice. And so you can continue to live in fear or you can confess your sin, trust Christ to forgive you through faith in what Jesus did, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. All right, so you can live in fear or you can put it to death, confess it, kill it, and the fear of being found out, therefore, will vanish. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret. It'll be gone. Proverbs 28, 13, just a wisdom nugget from Solomon. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so part of becoming fearless is fighting and killing the secret sin that makes you fearful. You understand that? Part of becoming fearless is killing the sin that, that you hide that, that makes you fearful. You want to not be fearful? Kill that sin. Put it to death. Drag it into the light. Confess it. And so that's number one. I mean, Jesus has already paid for it, right? On the cross. Now, now make war on it. And so that's number one. Fight your secret sin. But then Jesus moves on from that and, and, and gives, gives us kind of point two in this idea of becoming fearless. And this is the biggest one. This is the, I mean, you could almost put this is the only thing we need to talk about today. Like these are little, the other ones are kind of sub. This is the one. And what Jesus is going to lay out for us is that becoming fearless in our lives actually does not mean the absence of all fearing. Rather, it means fearing the right thing. And so look at verse 4 with me. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed 
has authority to cast into hell. Now, Jesus is not talking about Satan here. He's talking about Almighty God. Hell is not Satan's dominion. It's his prison. God is the one with authority over heaven and hell. And so he says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed. All right, power over life and death has authority to cast into hell, power over heaven and hell. And then Jesus repeats it. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so number two in your notes, fear God. You want to be fearless? Fear God. Becoming fearless in our lives does not mean the absence of all fearing, but rather fearing the right thing. And folks, I want you to get this, like write this one down. Yes, write this down. A right fear of God will free us from a wrong fear of people. A right fear of God will free you from a wrong fear of people. And if you want to live fearlessly, you've got to learn to fear God. And for the believer, I'm not talking about being afraid of Him, but having a holy awe and reverence of Him that's almost fearful. It's almost afraid. So, so John Piper, he's got a way with words. He, in his book, Pleasures of God, he tells this story describing the fear of God as if we were caught in a terrible storm while exploring an Arctic glacier. So I read that and I was like, I'm already in. Like, that's on a bucket list. I want to hike a glacier. I'm doing 70 miles on the Appalachian Trail this spring, but a glacier, that's a whole nother level. So the storm on this glacier, and it's so strong, it's, it's about to blow you off the side of the glacier, which is off a cliff or into a crevice, right? So that's about to happen. You're about to be crushed. The storm's blowing all around you. And then suddenly you see a cleft in the ice where you can hide and find shelter. And you get in there, and even though you're safe, you watch the storm go past with kind of a trembling pleasure. And so he writes, at first there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. And folks, by and large, the church today has lost this understanding of the fear of God. His ridiculous power and right to do whatever he wants. Clay cannot talk back to the potter. We're clay. He's the potter. And when you get this kind of fear that God is good, but he's not safe. Like Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion, but he's a good one. 
And you get the awesome fear that Moses felt at the burning bush where he takes off his shoes because he's trembling and he's hiding his face in the fear of God. And you get the fear that Isaiah felt when he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in awful obedience, he says, Here I am, send me. Because when we see God's awesome purity and holiness and then our own sin and finiteness and we tremble before God with trembling pleasure, earth's fears flee. The right fear of God will free you from a wrong fear of people. When we see God for who he is and his majesty and glory, and we live rightly underneath that and fear him rightly, we will not fear other people. And then on top of that, watch this, verse 6. Look at verse 6. So Jesus throws this thing down. Fear God, I warn you. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so you've got this trembling pleasure at the awesomeness of God. But then this same God with all power and authority is also the God who knows me and loves me. So I'll just go ahead and take a second. Everybody look out there so we don't have to be doing it. There's cute little kids, right? Get your little view. And then everybody get back up here. This, same, this, this God that we tremble before with this awesome power is the same God who knows me, who knows you and loves me and loves you. It's, if you're a Christian here, it's that God Who's for you? And so he's he's the king, all right? He's the judge. He has authority over heaven and hell. But for the believer, what has happened is God the judge has slammed the gavel down, not guilty, not on the basis of what we've done, but only on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place. And then the judge has climbed over the desk and adopted us into his family, made us his own, and he delights in us, and he loves us, and he dotes on us like a loving, perfect dad does on his children. This is what has happened in the gospel. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all right, what happened then is he suffered the full wrath of God's fury and anger at sin, all right, of, of the Father's uh, wrath on sin. He suffered all of that as my substitute, like I deserve that. Basically, he and I traded places. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he actually became my sin so that I could actually become his righteousness. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. That Jesus took my record, he died for it, and he offers me his perfect record in exchange. That he took my shameful unrighteousness, and he gave me his perfect righteousness. 
So that when God looks at me now, he sees me in that. And through, you know, like when I, when I receive that, through repentance and faith, full acceptance becomes mine. And so now this God of awesome power with all authority on heaven and earth, before which we should have this reverential fear. Okay, kind of like at the Grand Canyon. Blown away at the spectacle, but pretty terrified of the cliff. Not, not like you're not fearful that I'm actually going to fall in, but you're fearful like what that would be like. You recognize that. This is amazing. There's a little bit of good fear in me that makes it all the more amazing. That's why I love to sit on that thing and hang my legs off. Like, makes it, I don't know, I get high off that. But God's the greatest high when you fear Him rightly. And so you've got this all-powerful God. But far from getting ready to throw you into hell, He's watching over you and making sure you're safe. That's who's in your corner. A God who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows what's good for you better than you do. That's why he will say no to so many of your prayers. You would pray for what he gives you. All right, it's time to go get somebody. You would pray for what he gives you if you knew everything that he does. And so this God who knows everything about you better than you do, down to the number of hairs on your head. And I looked it up. That's about 100,000 people on average. Now, some of us are bringing that average down a little bit. But about 100,000 100, hairs on, on average times 8 billion people. That's 800 trillion hairs. And God knows every one of them. Sparrows. He knows every one of them. Nothing happens outside of his control. He's never surprised or caught off guard by anything. Saddened, yes. Surprised, no. Sovereign, always. So this great, big, all-powerful God, supreme reality of the universe that we tremble before in Christ. He's in your corner. And so drink down the truth of the, the old spiritual song. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. This big God. Nothing happens outside of him. I know he watches me. I know he watches me. If you're in Christ... That's who's in your corner. And so tremble at his power, tremble at his goodness. And when you tremble there, you won't tremble before anybody else. When God is big, people are small. And when you fear God that way, it'll actually lead you to, to acknowledge him. Like that's what the disciples were scared of. And so Jesus is laying out, hey, fear God. And you won't fear anything else. So look at verse 8 with me. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, just to be real clear here, Jesus isn't saying that like we walk into a situation and we're trying to acknowledge Jesus and then we need to lead with our chin. Right, And we also need to be careful that we, uh, what we're focused on is acknowledging Christ. Not Christ plus my culture. Not Christ plus my lifestyle. Not Christ plus my political opinions. Not Christ plus my preferences. Not Christ plus, plus my way of doing things. But just Christ. Acknowledge Him. 
And it's not about Facebook posts. It's not about bumper stickers. It's about your life. It's about my life. And when we fear God rightly, we won't fear people and we'll let our life display the gospel. Not as arrogant, self-righteous jerks that bow the knee to Jesus plus some idolatrous thing, but just humble yet fearless men and women of God. And so where are you at? Hard inspection time for you, for me. Do our lives and our stewardship of our time and our talent and our treasure, do they acknowledge Christ? Do, do we confess Him to a watching world? Or have you tried to go into a secret service? If your coworkers don't know your cry, you're, you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, what does, that, what does that say about you? Again, I'm not talking you're leading with your chin and you're just being some arrogant jerk. That's not what Christians do, should do. But humble, graceful, and then open your mouth. No one gets saved by just watching your life. That gives you an entryway, but you've got to open your mouth. So, so where are you at? Do you, do you confess Him? Or do you deny Him? Do, you, do your choices deny Him? Do the people you date, the things you do, the things you don't do? What, what, does, that, what does that say? And, and if you're in a place of denying Him, for some of you, Repent and, and, and come back. For some of you, repent and become a Christian. Become a believer. Accept His grace. And if you do this, verse 10, it says, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Alright? But then Jesus gives this warning. Second half of verse 10. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so just real quick, this is what people often call the unforgivable sin. And it's, it's pretty famous, but it's also pretty misunderstood. And so just, just straight up, we're talking about fear today. So let me just kind of alleviate some for some of you. If you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. If you're worried about that, then you haven't. Okay, because if you had, you wouldn't be worried about it. The fact that you're worried about it, the fact that you're concerned about that means you haven't done it. Because what the unforgivable sin is all about, as one commentator put it, a conscious, willful, intentional blasphemy of the clearly recognized revelation of God's grace in Christ through the Holy Spirit. All right, A revelation which nevertheless out of hate and hostility is ascribed to the devil. It's of the very nature of the case that such a person, hardened by sin, will not be forgiven. Not because of any deficiency in Christ's grace, but because such a person denies the only gospel that can ever save anyone. And so it's not so much a blasphemous thought or word, but a setting of the mind against the Spirit of God. That's what the blasphemy, that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. 
And so Jesus is just throwing this out there and throwing these warnings out there just to get us to understand that heaven is real, hell is hot, eternity is long. These are real things, all right? And there's, he has the power to cast to one way or the other. He has that power and he will do that thing. Judgment is coming. I mean, this is, Jesus is laying this down. He's heavy on this. And just trying to get us to recognize there's no fence sitting. In the book of Revelation, it talks about if you're lukewarm, Jesus says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. There's no fence sitting. But rolling this back up to the fear of God, all right? Again, the right fear of God. Mind these details for a second, but the, the big idea here is the right fear of God will free you from the wrong fear of people. And so tremble at his power, tremble at his goodness, and you won't tremble before others. Fear him, and you'll become fearless. And so number one, in becoming fearless, fight your secret sin. Number two, fear God. And now number three, depend on the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so again, this whole thing began with the disciples nervous of being associated with Jesus because it's becoming dangerous. And so he's teaching them, don't be a hypocrite like the Pharisees. All right. Fear God rightly, boys, and, and you won't fear others. And then remember this God with all of this power and all of this authority through the Holy Spirit is with you. Depend on Him. Depend on Him. When they, when they drag you before the authorities and put you on trial, which happened to all the disciples. You look through church history, all the saints, all the martyrs. What's happening right now with our brothers in Syria? And sisters in Iraq. And drug before. As they confess Christ. Those who are Christians there. This might even happen with our own grandchildren someday. Drug before. In those moments, don't grow anxious. Don't grow fearful. The Spirit is with you. And he'll help you stand strong regardless of what goes down. He'll give you the words to say. And keeping in mind, fearing God, we won't fear others. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So you win either way. And we're not like, hopefully no one's going to the stake and being burned tomorrow, right? We're not hoping for that. But this, this, this was a real deal. We sanitize the Bible so much and, and bring it into our culture. Jesus is talking to the disciples about getting killed. We worry about someone thinking that we're weird. Perspective. Perspective. But it's not up to you to like be strong. It's not on us to muscle this up and, and be strong like that. It's the, it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We depend on him. He lives in us. So Jesus is basically saying, don't be afraid. 
I'm there. Lo, I'll be with you till the ends of the age, right? My spirit will strengthen you. And you see this being fulfilled all throughout the book of Acts. You've got uneducated fishermen that suddenly become bosses. And they are just straight up going off on people. Like one time Peter's before 70 Sanhedrin. These are the PhDs of the day. And he just schools them all. Spirit was in him. That doesn't mean like I don't need to prepare. Right? Well, the Spirit's going to give me what to say. So I'm just going to get up here. Hey, good morning, everybody. Let's go. You Sunday school teacher, you still need to prepare. But don't, don't in that moment, man. Depend on the Spirit daily. He's with you in your office. He's with you on the job site. He's with you in the hospital. He's with you in the orphanage. He's with you in an IEP meeting. He's with you in your performance review. He's he's with you when your bills don't match your income. When someone throws and serves you with papers of divorce. When you get a call in the middle of the night that that, that a child or a parent or a sibling has died. He's, he's still with you. Lean into him. Press into the Holy Spirit. Depend on his strength. These are all things that flow out of a proper fear of God. So this year, 2017, marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Birthed on October the 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That's when it began. So we'll mark that this year throughout the year, celebrating some, some of those things. 1517. Four years later, Luther's on trial. It's called the Diet of Worms. All right? Not the worms you think of, but that's what it was called. And so he's on trial there. For all of his preaching and all of his writing, which had just spread like wildfire because of this new crazy thing called a printing press. So all this started spreading like wildfire. People were becoming literate and able to read these things. And so he's on trial and there's kings there. There's princes there. Charles Martin, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, had called this under the direction of the pope. And, and so they want, they want to catch Luther, they want to kill Luther, they want to extinguish what he's saying, what he's writing. And so Luther knows how this will go down. If he will recant, or he will take back all that he said, all, right, all that he said in calling out the church for its sinful ways, and how it had, had become so just corrupted, calling out the Pope for his sinful ways and his corruption and, and seeking to return the church to the teaching of Scripture that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and not by sacraments, not by indulgences, not by works and things that we can do or money we pay to someone so that they will pray for us to get us out of purgatory. Luther knows that if he will recant of all that, he'll live. And if he doesn't, then it is a stake and a fire. And so he's at the Diet of Worms and eventually after a 24-hour pause, he stands there before John Eck, a powerful archbishop, and he asks Martin Luther, do you recant of these writings? And Luther replies, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, 
I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, and not by popes and councils which have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, and I will not, we can't. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. In that giant moment of history, Luther's massive fear of God freed him from his smaller fear of men. Years later, there's another reformer in Scotland named John Knox. And as he was lowered into the grave, one said of him, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of a man. Folks, the right fear of God will free you from the wrong fear of people, of uncertainty, of the unknown, of the things you worry about. And you fear God rightly. And know His power, and know His majesty, and know His goodness, and then know like a sparrow and hairs on the head, He's for you. How much more valuable are you than a sparrow? When you get that, folks, and I'm praying, get that. When you know and rightly fear God, it will free you from the wrong fear of man. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Let's pray. Father, help us to fight our secret sin. Help us to put it to death, to not toy around with it, to not play around with it. And if that means Lord, we need to confess that to, to people, to our spouse, to our community group, to, to an accountability partner, to someone we're in a small group with. Lord, give us the courage and the power to do that so we might slay this thing and not play around with it. As John Owen said, Lord, help us to be killing sin lest it kill us. Because one of the two is happening. Help us to fight, God, and help us to know you and fear you rightly, not afraid of you. You who gave your son. We have nothing to fear in that sense before you, but help us to reverence you and, 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 and understand your overwhelmingness. That you're good, but you're not safe. That you're good, but you're not tame. You, we cannot domesticate you. And help us to fear you so great that the fears of our lives diminish and the fears of earth flee. And even as we do that, Lord, and we know that we don't have the strength to always pull that up, so help us to depend on the Holy Spirit and beg you and pray to you and ask you to do these things in us to give us this right view. Lord, help us to just behold your awesomeness to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. We know these things. We believe these things. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.